Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jessica, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, you are one of many guests who has been referred to us by our, our, our mutual friend, Clay Haybear, uh, who seems to consistently introduce a steady stream of fascinating and amazing people to us. So on that note, uh, can you tell us a a bit about your story, your background, your journey, and and how that has led you to doing the work that you're doing today? Sure. So I grew up in New Hampshire. I am an East Coast girl, but I actually started my professional career in Southern California. I, right after college, got a job at the Girl Scouts of San Gorgonio Council, which is a Girl Scout Council in Southern California. The way Girl Scouts is structured, there's a big national organization. Um, They don't actually provide any direct programming and service to girls. They charter organizations around the country to provide that programming, and all of those, those organizations are their own independent nonprofits. And so I started working at one of those nonprofits. I had been a Girl Scout for a few years when I was a girl and kind of stumbled upon this career in the nonprofit world. Literally, um, my uh, boyfriend and I at the time were driving around um, Southern California, kind of lost. Uh, He had a job. I was looking for one. And um, I looked up as we were driving around and saw a building with a Girl Scout logo on it. And I thought to myself, well, that's really interesting. I've never thought of them as having an office and employing people. Let me check this out. So I went online, figured out that they did have an office, that they had a full staff. It didn't look like they were hiring anyone, but I decided to reach out to the assistant executive director at the time and see if she would meet with me went in and had one meeting and she and I totally hit it off. And she basically said, hang out for two weeks. I think I can find you something. And so two weeks later, she gives me a call and asks me to come in and do fundraising for them as a fund development associate, um, a job that I had had a little bit of an experience with, um, with a, a one sort of project and job I worked on during college but really um, jumped right in and started figuring out the whole nonprofit fundraising space in a, in a really kind of unexpected way. Mm-hmm. And once I got started at Girl Scouts, I um, you know, really noticed that there were some sort of interesting things happening with the organization. It was a hundred year old organization. You know, I think to a lot of people on the outside, 
they would assume that Girl Scouts would be a warm and positive and supportive place to work because of its mission and the work that it does for girls. And everyone associates it with really great Girl Scout cookies and the cute girls selling the Girl Scout cookies. And it does do a lot of amazing things for girls. And the program part of it was wonderful. But what I found fascinating and was really difficult to deal with at the time was that the culture in the organization in terms of what it felt like to work there as an adult was really, really negative. It was um, extremely hierarchical. It was very difficult to get um, any decisions made without having to run them up through the full chain of command all the way up to the CEO it was 2003, 2004, but if we wore skirts, we were still expected to wear pantyhose. And it just was a place that really didn't have any trust in its employees. I had uh, graduated from college and started this job, and I felt like I was being sent back to kindergarten um, because our time was so restricted. Um, you know, we had a lot of people working in the organization who were working parents and you know, they couldn't take an afternoon off or even a couple hours off to take their child to the doctor or to see their child in a baseball game or a school play without putting in a request, a formal request, um, having their manager sign off on it. And we only got time off in half day increments. So you couldn't just take an hour here or there. And so I worked for a number of years at the Girl Scouts kind of under this restricted culture, um, watched a number of leaders kind of come and go at the organization and saw a lot of what not to do. Um, meanwhile, I was kind of moving up. I became uh, the director of development and then chief operating officer. And then about five years into my time there, um, I was appointed as the CEO. And so I inherited this organization with about 75 staff and we operated all of these different Girl Scout camps and had about 15,000 girls and about 5,000 volunteers involved in the organization. And when I stepped into that leadership role, I had sort of built up all of this pent up energy around what was driving me crazy about the negative culture and why things weren't working well. And it wasn't just that it was a place that made people feel bad when they worked there. It was also having a really negative impact on the business as well. We had seen declining membership nationally in Girl Scouts for about a decade and things were just not working well. It, no one was being innovative. It was a place where there was a lot of fear around taking risks. And so, um, I really, when I got into that role of CEO, it was like, okay, I have this, this amazing organization in so many ways, but so broken also in so many ways. And I have this amazing opportunity to be able to step in and figure out with this team of people that we had who were, were really, really great, but I think had had their potential kind of uh, diminished by the fact that they were never allowed to tap into it. It was always kind of restricted. And so this great group of people and I really started looking at, okay, what can we do to change this? Um, and, you know, my, my first attempt at trying to change the culture and think differently about work kind of fell flat. We, um, I had decided that I would implement a, uh, a flexible work environment, but my concept of that in the beginning, because I was so used to all of the structure was basically we set up a program where managers of a certain level and above are allowed to apply to work from home one day a week. And 
I was about to roll out this program and one of our administrative assistants um, who would have been one of the lowest paid people in the organization pulled me aside and said, you know, why is it that only managers of a certain level and above can participate in this program when the people who really need it the most, who need to be able to save money on gas and commuting costs, aren't allowed to participate? Do you trust us less? And I was kind of stopped in my tracks. I had never thought about the concept of trust in the workplace in that way and how in a lot of very old, very hierarchical organizations, there is this sense that if you're higher up on the hierarchy, you are more trusted and the lower down you are, the less you are trusted. And it just really put me in this place of thinking about what does that mean in terms of what we're saying to these human beings that we hire? Like we're willing to hire you, we're willing to give you a paycheck, but we aren't willing to trust you. And I lucked out and at that time came across this book called Why Work Sucks and How to Fix It that detailed how two women at Best Buy had transitioned Best Buy's corporate headquarters into a what they call the results only work environment where employees could work wherever they wanted whenever they wanted as long as the work got done and I basically read the book and decided immediately that this was what we needed to do it was a very radical change but I saw it as kind of like the defibrillator paddles you know like shocking the organization back to life and we implemented a results-only work environment within a month. We were the first nonprofit organization in the country to have a results-only work environment in place. And it was pretty amazing to see how dramatic the transformation was incredibly quickly. It wasn't without challenge. I mean, there were certainly um, big hurdles in terms of getting people to sort of shift their mindset around how do we know when someone's working? You know, usually um, we were used to if someone shows up at the office on time and they stay until five o'clock, then they must be working. That's how we gauged whether someone was meeting a minimum level of performance. And if they weren't required to be there during those hours anymore, it was difficult in some cases for managers to be able to tell what their employees were doing. But what it did was really push us to this place where as an organization, we had to really start thinking about what is it that we're trying to achieve? What are the, the results that we're looking for? And out of this sense of trust, this underlying feeling that all of a sudden we said, we trust you so much that we trust you to show up when you need to do your work. We trust you uh, to leave when you need to leave. We trust you to work from wherever you want. All of a sudden, innovative ideas started popping up. We started challenging some of the systems and structures that had always been in place and asking the question of whether there was a better way to do it. Um, even you know, our director of finance at the time had this big button, red circle with a line through it that said, you know, we've always done it this way. And everyone really got into the spirit of asking why, which was a question that I felt had been missing from our vocabulary for years and years and years. Um, and it was a it was a fascinating experience to see how that transformation had a trickle down effect in terms of employees feeling more comfortable being themselves at work, feeling like they could bring their full selves to the work that they were doing. It 
impacted people's health because for the first time they were able to really build their schedules around creating time to go to the gym or go for a jog or do things that they felt like they didn't have time to do before. And it helped a lot of people reconnect with their kids and their families and um, figure out how to create that more of that um, sort of right intersection between the work that they needed to get done at work and all of the other things that were incredibly important to them in their lives. Hmm. You know, I have uh, my first question around this really is, is, you know, I mean, you rose to the, the role of CEO at a very young age, it sounds like. And I'm really curious about sort of navigating the dynamics uh, of any organization, not just the Girl Scouts, to get to that level uh, so quickly. I think one of the, the unique situations that I found myself in was that I happened to work in a role in the organization that is a mystery to a lot of people. So fundraising is kind of a scary thing. The idea of asking people for money makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And in some ways, it sort of feels like magic. Like people don't understand how you get from that place of asking someone for money and all of a sudden a $25,000 check shows up. And I, I think the fact that that was the role that I started in really put me in a good position to, um, to prove myself to work collaboratively. I was raising money for other people's programs. I was raising money to support the activities of the other people in the organization. And I think that helped me build some incredibly important relationships throughout the organization. The other thing that was key for me was that um, one of the first people that I managed who worked with me as an assistant, she was more than twice my age. and um, But in spirit, she was so incredibly youthful and innovative and just sort of young in her ideas. Um, and at the same time had an incredible amount of wisdom and maturity and sort of brought so much to our relationship. So she taught me a lot about navigating that space of, um, me being new and, and having all of these innovative ideas and really wanting to push and kind of test the system and at the same time working in um, some of the wisdom, some of the experience that other people brought to the table. Um, I think the other thing was that I, as I was, I was fundraising, I realized that we had really built a lot of programs that were not fundable. Um, as I looked through uh, the program guide, we were doing a lot of things like teddy bear tea time, which was really great and really fun, but you know, no funder was going to write us uh, or write us a check and, and give us a grant for teddy bear tea time. And so part of what I sort of took under my wing was program development and started developing programs that I a new girls needed and B knew that we could get funding for. And um, some of the first programs were around science, technology and engineering um, for girls. And it was a, a, a really amazing experience to be both the person who was writing the fundraising proposal and the person on the ground kind of implementing the program and working with girls directly. And I think um, being in the role that I was in enabled me to have a very broad and kind of active role in all aspects of the organization and learning really fundamental components of how an organization runs at even at a, a really young age. Hmm. 
Well, let me ask you this. I mean, let's say somebody is not necessarily in a role with that kind of visibility. I mean, what can they do to navigate dynamics of the organization that they're in to really, you know, make the biggest contribution possible? I think a lot of it for me, because obviously I was I was operating under a fair number of restrictions. Um, it was something where uh, had I had I really asked for permission for everything that I was doing and waited for permission, probably would have made no headway. So some of it was me figuring out where the little sort of cracks were, where I could see a little light coming through and realize that if I just sort of wedge myself in there, I might get somewhere. And I think, um, you know, even if you're not in a role like I was in where I had this sort of power around the fundraising component, I think in every organization, there are absolutely things that every employee can control about what they do. And um, even if it's a little side project that you kind of start working on and like tinkering around with and playing with um, and figuring out how you can then sort of test that and grow that into something that um, that your peers or your boss will accept and get excited about. And Oftentimes, that's what it would be. It wasn't that I came to them at the earliest stage of having the inkling of an idea. I would take the time to vet an idea and um, figure out where I was going to get the money to fund something and have talked to potential funders about it and could come to the table and say, look, if we do this, not only will this many girls be impacted, but we'll also get $50,000 to make this happen. Um, and I think that approaching it in that way where I had done my homework, I was really well prepared. Um, I was really passionate about what I was working on. And I presented it in a way that was basically kind of a, um, a, a, a pure win for the organization that there wasn't a lot of risk involved. Um, and I think that's sometimes the biggest challenge in terms of going to a manager and saying, I want to try this new thing. The, the, the you know, biggest hesitation is, like, if that new thing fails, it's really the manager who is on the line for the failure. And so trying to mitigate for the manager that sense of, you know, I'm putting you at risk is really, really important. Hmm. You know, one of the other things that you talked about uh, is, is, you know, when you saw this organization, you saw people who wanted to make changes, but their potential had been diminished. And, you know, I think that happens with individuals, too, uh, as, as we get older in adult life and, and we kind of lose, you know, whatever it is that we had the potential to accomplish. We kind of lose sight of that. I'm wondering how you tap back into that. You know, I mean, how do you get people to tap back into it with your, within the organization and how we can apply some of those concepts to our own lives? I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we tend to develop definitions for ourselves um, individually and within an organization, it's often a, a sort of definition that's been created for you that, you know, you are the person who does this and you don't do anything other than that. And therefore, you're not capable of doing anything other than that. And I think we we put those same definitions on ourselves as well. I mean, I think back to high school and being in a pre-calculus class and not doing very well and struggling with it. And I actually happened to be in a class with a couple of guys who were literal geniuses who were taking pre-calculus in like seventh grade. And, um, and I compared myself to them and really struggled. And basically at that point had decided I'm not a math person. And that then counted me out for math. It counted me out for computer science. And I kind of carried that definition with me throughout my life. And I think we all do very similar things in terms of creating this construct of 
this picture of who I am, what I'm capable of, what, how do I approach the world? And I think getting out of that is really about um, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. So, you know, I stay in that place of, of, or stayed in that place of being a person who says, I can't do math because it was more comfortable to stay in that place. Um, if I push that, then I'm testing a definition that I've been holding on to for, you know, 20, 25 years. And, um, and, and so that can be really, really scary. And so I think some of it is I've, you know, now started playing around with learning how to code and, um, and finding that I really, really enjoy it. And that that definition that I had created for myself of being someone who wasn't capable of that is totally off. Um, but you can't get to that place, I think, of, of really tapping back into that potential unless you push yourself out of your comfort zone. And sometimes you need other people to help you do that. Um, I did that with taking an improv class. Um, I've never been someone who's been comfortable with kind of like on the spot reacting to something. Never felt like that was a safe space for me. And taking an improv class was really, really hard and put me in a place where I was uncomfortable every single time I had to go to class. But I learned an incredible amount about myself and got through that experience feeling like, okay, this definition that I'm not capable of doing that type of thing anymore is totally off. Um, and I think in the context of an organization, part of a, a leader or a manager creating that space for people is first of all, creating that space of trust. Um, because in that space of trust, people then feel much more comfortable taking risks and being themselves and bringing their full selves to work. And and then giving people opportunities to step out of what their typical roles are. If they've been doing the exact same thing for, you know, two years or five years or 10 years, um, giving them a chance to try something, giving them um, something to, to stretch for and really to, to um, create that space of discomfort for a little while and sit in that space of discomfort and be in that space of discomfort and know that when you get out on the other side, you'll probably have discovered that the definition that you had created for yourself was too restrictive and maybe simply flat out wrong. Hmm. I love that. Uh, especially, you know, the story of not being a math person. Cause I always say I'm an Indian person that sucks at math. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, you know, it's funny. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we actually create these really strange limitations just through these definitions. And as a result, we don't actually get to experience what we're truly capable of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also that sense of, of um, you know, you really start seeing the world from only one perspective when you've created that definition as well. It's, it's um, also a lens through which you view everything. And so I think when you really test that definition of yourself, you're not only creating more space for yourself to tap into all of those areas of potential that you had not had access to before, but you're giving yourself a totally new perspective through which to see the world. And that opens up like yet another door and another door and another door. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, from Girl Scouts, where does your journey take you then? So from Girl Scouts, I, um, you know, I got to the point at the, at the organization where it was, it was interesting. I think I had, you know, I, I pushed really, really hard um, to change a lot of things. And I think there was sort of this curve where like, 
I was I was going up and people were really excited about all of this innovation, especially at the you know really high levels of the national organization. It was like, wow, this is amazing. These things are really going to change the organization. And then it was kind of like, oh crap, these things are really going to change the organization. Like if we do all this stuff, we're really going to have to change. And I think um, especially for old organizations that have been doing things a certain way for a long time and have a lot riding on change, that change is really, really scary. And it was actually a 16-year-old girl who was not a Girl Scout um, who I met. Uh, her name's Emily Ann, who I met through a program. Um, and she had started her own nonprofit at 16 years old. And she, after hearing me kind of lament being in this position of knowing that things needed to change and not always finding support for the things that 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 needed to shift um, Emily Ann kind of pulled me aside and said, Jessica, I don't think you should work for the Girl Scouts anymore. She was like, I think you should work in some place where they appreciate innovation and actually want to change. And um, her words, her words stuck with me. And, um, and I, I didn't sort of jump on it right away in terms of deciding to leave. But it was something that I just kind of sat with and thought about. And um, and, and through that process of, of changing things at Girl Scouts, I had also started sort of reaching outside of the organization and trying to get information from, from other companies and outside of the nonprofit world. And I ended up going and doing a, um, a three-day program, intensive program at Zappos. We were one of the first groups to do their Zappos Insights program, where you basically get to spend three days at Zappos with their senior executives, with Tony Shea, the founder, um, really understanding how they built the company, how they think about culture. And it was actually there that I met Clay A. Bear, who um, introduced us. And um, Clay also introduced me to uh, Seth Godin, to his writings and his blog. And it just opened up this entire new world for me. And I started following Seth's blog, met Seth briefly at a book signing, and ended up actually helping Seth out as he was doing some road trip stops around the country for his book, Lynchpin. I volunteered at a number of different stops. And um, by the time it, it got to be sort of four or five months after I had started doing that, I was still working at Girl Scouts. I was just kind of taking a little bit of time here and there on weekends to go and do these trips. And Seth announced that he was doing a female entrepreneur MBA program. And it was a short program, something I could still do while I was at Girl Scouts. And I decided to apply. Um, at the time, I was not an entrepreneur. So Seth basically told me, I won't consider your application until you um, write an eight-page business plan for a business, any business, something that you could start making money with right away. And so I worked with Clay, wrote a business plan. Seth hated it. Um, <laughs> told me to try again. Hated the, the my next try. Told me to come up with eight more business ideas. And um, by the time I had gotten through that whole process, he finally accepted me into the program. And I spent three days in New York City, um, just outside of New York, with fourteen other amazing women, age range, you know, twenty four up to their fifties. Just all different types of companies, all entrepreneurs, and um, really just had my eyes opened to a whole different world, and especially the world of tech startups and um, the pace of innovation that was happening in the tech industry. Um, 
And I still wasn't totally convinced that I was ready to leave. I think once you get, you know, sort of drawn into an organization that has um, as much potential as Girl Scouts, and I was still like, really gung ho on this idea that I could somehow change this entire organization that was 100 years old and had 3.5 million members and 10,000 staff across the country. Um, and I'd made a lot of really good impact. But I um, kind of got to the point where it just it was very clear that it was not the right fit anymore. And um, I did the whole like, okay, I'm just doing it and, um, and decided I, I was going to move to New York. And I um, sold all my stuff, sold my car, packed up a few suitcases, um, bought a one-way plane ticket to New York, and was going to do some freelancing when I got to the city. Um, literally on the plane on the, on the way to New York, I was searching. I had Wi-Fi, and I was searching around for um, events to attend when I got there and people to connect with. And I found an organization called New York Tech Meetup. And I had seen someone tweet about it. And so I was searching around, found it, signed up, um, got tickets to my first New York Tech Meetup event, which happened um, a couple weeks after I arrived in New York. And I had arrived a little bit late. I was sitting in the very front row of this 850-seat theater at NYU. And um, the organization's president and board chair got up on the stage and said, hey, guys, we're really excited we're um, announcing tonight that we're looking for our first ever full-time employee. We need an executive director who has nonprofit management experience and event experience and fundraising experience. And you know, if any of you are interested or you know someone who would be a good fit, like definitely reach out. And I'm sort of sitting there in the front row going like, this is really weird. Like that is my exact resume. Um, and so I actually, I didn't apply right away. I was in this mindset of, of I want to be a freelancer. I want to, you know, work on my own for a while. But in the span of about two weeks, um, I decided that I really didn't like freelancing, at least not in that moment. Um, and uh, the whole idea of like the dwindling bank account and, you know, not quite knowing like when I was going to um, get the next client or get the next project um, was not very interesting to me. And New York Tech Meetup was such a big draw. It was um, so amazing to sit in the audience at that first event that I went to and just see the level of um, innovation and speed and sort of interest in creating things that were really solving problems and um, and kind of digging into how do we harness technology to support all of the things that we want to do in our lives. And, um, and so I ended up, I created this resume that um, I decided I was going to make a resume that was more sort of graphically oriented. And it had, I custom designed um, sort of graphic Girl Scout badges to represent all of my major skill sets. And I wrote this cover letter that um, didn't reveal at the beginning that I had been at Girl Scouts, but I just said I'd been working with entrepreneurs for, you know, the last seven and a half years and sort of told this whole story and then just sort of said, just so happens that the entrepreneurs I've been working with have been an average of eight years old and sold Girl Scout cookies. Um, and it's funny because people, I think these days often think that a resume and cover letter like don't hold that much weight or somehow are not that important. But um, if you were to ask the board of directors at New York Tech Meetup, uh, sort of what was one of the key things that attracted them to me to talk to me and then eventually hire me, uh, they all talk about my resume. 
and, um, and, you know, still talk about it to this day, three and a half years later. And so submitted that resume and cover letter, um, got asked to interview. And then about six weeks later was taking the stage at New York tech meetup, um, as the organization's first full-time employee and, and executive director. Wow. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So 
A uh, couple of questions uh, going back to sort of this next phase. Uh, you know, one is is making that you know leap that you're ready to leave um, and letting go of something, which clearly, I mean, is not small. I mean, to rise to the role of CEO and say, you know what, I'm going to let this go for the unknown. I am really curious, you know, mindset wise, how you develop the guts to do something like that. You know, I think that part of it was that it was like, it was a slow burn. It was one of those things where it wasn't like I woke up one morning and said, um, out of the blue, everything's great, but you know what? I think I'm going to quit. Um, it was this growing sense that, um, I was not in the same place that I was in terms of my own um, passion and energy and interest in terms of trying to change the organization as I was when I first started and when I first came into the CEO role. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that it was really exhausting fighting a lot of the uphill battles and really trying hard to change something that I think at its heart really didn't want to change. Um, it was, you know, a, an organization that understood that it was um, having a lot of challenges and really kind of under fire in terms of of just not being able to um, keep up with its like keep up any level of growth that had been declining for you know a decade. And so I, I think that I started to realize slowly. And if anything, I would actually say that I probably waited too long, um, that I had that feeling for a while, probably at least like six to nine months that, um, this isn't quite feeling right anymore. And, um, and some of it was, you know, a, a sort of like just a pure emotional sense of instead of being um, feeling myself being very positive about the trajectory that we could potentially go down, I found myself feeling incredibly, incredibly negative. Um, and I tend to be a very positive person. And so if I find myself getting into that space of not being able to find the positive and constantly interpreting everything through a negative, negative lens, that's a signal to me that something is off. Um, and I think it just, it was really Emily Ann's words of saying, like, they don't really want you to do this. Um, like they might be entertaining this idea and kind of getting excited about it or seeming like they're excited about it, but they really don't want to change. Um, and that triggered something in me. And I, you know, and I am a person who likes to stick with things until they're done, likes to see things through until the end. I, I mean, I was there for seven and a half years and, um, I think that, I, it, it was hard to say, okay, you know, I'm done with this, but it was sort of like, I feel like my body and my spirit and everything else was telling me that I was done with it even before my brain was. And so by the time I got to that point of like making that sort of active decision of, of what was going to happen, um, it really wasn't anything I had to spend that much time thinking about or a sort of fear hurdle that I had to get over. I had just been sitting with that feeling for long enough that I knew that it was the right next step for me. So let me ask you this. I mean, if somebody is, is sitting with that feeling, but they're ignoring it, I mean, is there something they can do to finally give into it and just do what they have to do? You know, I think one of the the important things for me was developing a practice of like thinking about best case scenario, middle case scenario, worst case scenario. Um, because oftentimes I think one of the things that held me back 
from making that decision sooner was some of it had to do with job security and just the the logistics of I've been getting a similar paycheck, you know, every two weeks for the last however many years and I have health insurance and like this feels really comfortable and safe and and this is a hard thing to just say like I need to make a clean break and I I need to walk away from this and so um I, you know, started just writing down, okay, well what's the absolute worst thing that would happen? So if I if I leave and I can't get a job anywhere else, no one wants to hire me, you know, I try freelancing and I can't get any clients, like what's the worst case scenario? And it turned out that the worst case scenario was like, I move back to New Hampshire and live with my parents. And I love my parents. And so like, you know, I was like, oh, that's the worst case scenario? Like that's actually really not that bad. So what am I worrying about? Um, and I think we we create all these scenarios in our heads about how bad something will be um, and think of ourselves as going from, you know, being this person who's working and earning a paycheck and has health insurance to being a person who is, you know, on the streets and has nothing. And, um, and although I think there probably have been some stories of people who very quickly went from, you know, point A to a, a really difficult point B, I think for the majority of people, it doesn't look like that. Um, and, and so taking yourself through that scenario of, of what's the worst that could happen is, is really important. Um, and, you know, and I think that the, the, this idea of, you know, as soon as you get the feeling that you want to, you know, move on or that you're not happy with your doing, well, quit it because, you know, just quit and see what happens. I mean, I really think that um, for me, because I knew that I had figured out what the worst case scenario was and that I was in a position sort of financially and family wise that I, it wasn't that I was going to quit and then not be able to buy food the next day. I mean, I think everyone needs to take their own sort of personal situation into account and you may be in a place where you need to work like and keep doing what you're doing and have that not so great feeling for a little bit of time until you can put money aside so that you know that when you leave you're going to have something to fall back on or until you can build up a side project or a side business um, so that you you do have that base because as much as you know I I see myself as like being rebellious and challenging the system and doing all of these things, but I'm also a very, very practical person. You know, I'm the person who always has band-aids in her purse and like always has a granola bar and, you know, is very prepared for everything. And so I definitely see the the practical side of of our working lives and the fact that it's not just about reacting to a gut feeling and disregarding all of the practical components of life. I think it's figuring out how do you integrate those gut feelings and the sort of that roller coaster sometimes of being passionate about something and then not being passionate about it and weave into that the dynamics of needing to pay for rent and put food in your stomach and take care of your family or whatever all of your other obligations are. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you brought all that up because I think that uh, the sort of the curse of the online world is that we perpetuate the sort of, you know, leave your job, go live the four hour work week mantra almost to the point of of actually being bad for us. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I think it's um, what's interesting to me is that I think we are in this space where people are really paying attention to do I like my work or not? And if I am going to spend a huge chunk of my 
waking hours working, you know, should this be something that I get really excited about? And sort of where do I fall on that spectrum right now? And I think, you know, because of, of the internet, and because of the fact that we can see what people are doing, and we, we see often people's work lives and just their lives in general through a very filtered lens, we often have a, a lot of like, you know, is the grass greener over there questioning happening on a daily basis that really wasn't there mm-hmm. in quite the same way before. So I feel like more and more frequently, people are kind of getting up every day and going to work and saying to themselves, like, do I really like this? Oh, that guy's job looks way better. Or, you know, this guy just wrote a book about how you can quit what you're doing. And, you know, I think I could do that. Like, I could quit and do that. But it's it's not quite as simple as that. I think this idea of, of um, you know, sort of, constant dissatisfaction and I think sometimes we have to stop and say have I become somewhat addicted to being dissatisfied because being dissatisfied keeps me really busy because I'm constantly thinking about well what else could I do and how could I make myself happier and is this thing better or that thing better and there's there's a certain level of kind of I think um addiction and uh, kind of gratification around this idea of if you're constantly dissatisfied, you're constantly giving yourself something to think about and something to potentially get excited about in the future. Um, Instead of really sitting back and saying, is the world conspiring to make me feel dissatisfied all the time? And is it really true that I'm dissatisfied? Um, or is it that that sort of conspiring world to constantly show me um, in a very filtered way what else might be possible? Yeah, I, I really love this because, you know, one of the things that I have realized over the last probably six to nine months is that no matter how transparent somebody's entire online presence is, it's still a projection yeah. of who they are and what their life is actually like. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll never forget, you know, my, my, um, one of my good friends recently had posted a picture of their like gathering on, on Mother's Day. And, um, and I remember seeing the picture before I talked to her and thinking, like, wow, it looks like she had an amazing Mother's Day. Like they're smiling and happy in this picture. And then I talked to her afterwards and she was like, it was the worst day ever. And it just, you know, it, it was a, an immediate, very like personal understanding of how, um, what we project online is is oftentimes 180 degrees different than what's actually happening in our lives. And I think especially in the world of work and in the idea of of doing what you're passionate about or, um, you know, finding that sense of, of um, satisfaction through work that we don't really see people grinding it out. You know, we see the end result of grinding it out. And I think for as much as we logically know that a lot of work went into something and that people often feel miserable when they're in the sort of lowest point of trying to get something done, we still want to believe that like you don't have to go through that. Um, and, you know, and there's a famous quote about, you know, if you do what you love, you'll never feel like you've worked a day in your life. And I think that, you know, it's a bit misleading yeah. because I, you know, I, I think that, um, most of us, you know, when, when you hear something like that, it's like, okay, so this should never feel bad. Like I should never have, you know, a negative sort of crappy emotion while I'm working on something. And, you know, I think the bottom line is 
the, the, you know, anyone that you talk to, whether they're, you know, uh, a genius artist or they're a writer or they're a business person, they don't go through, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just, you know, skipping and whistling and always happy and never frustrated and never having anything that feels difficult to them. I mean, even the most enthusiastic people I know have moments where they kind of say, like, this is really, really hard. Um, and even might say, like, I'm not sure that I'm cut out to do this. You know, this is so difficult and so frustrating to me in this moment that I'm not sure that I should even be doing this anymore. Um, and I think it would be helpful for people to be a little bit more transparent about the fact that um, it's not all, you know, sunshine and roses, but that it's still worth it, you know? And I think that's that's what we get to that point of people saying, like, yep, like, I, I love this so much. What they're really saying is they they love that it's worth it in the end. They love the outcome. They're not saying that they feel, you know, happy and positive and and nothing in terms of frustration or negativity at all while they're going through the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't remember where it was. I, I, re I read it either this morning in a book that I was reading or somewhere. It was like, you know, the the real, you know, test is how much pain are you willing to go through? To, right. to get to, to, to that outcome that you're speaking of. And, and you know, nobody sees the pain. Right. And I, I was listening to, um, to, uh, an interview with, I think it was with Tavis Smiley, who, who just wrote a book about, um, Martin Luther King Jr. And he was talking about, you know, him being at a point, um, uh, Dr. King being at a point of being so depressed, um, even while he was doing all of this amazing work, being so depressed at certain points that, you know, there was one morning where he got out of bed, got fully dressed and just couldn't do it and got back into bed, you know, and we think of someone like him as, you know, always being in that space of having hope and being positive and, you know, not having to deal with something like depression and to hear that story and to think about, you know, all of these people that have, have changed the world in so many spectacular ways the fact that they're still human, you know, that they still have this range of emotions and that they have days when they wake up and it's really hard to put one foot in front of the other. Um, and I think to me, you know, when we think about like the business world and the world of work in general, when I say, you know, bringing your full self to work or bringing your full self to business, what that really means to me is accepting the fact that we are human beings with these broad ranges of emotion and that the idea that we'd be able to um, leave certain parts of that spectrum out, that we would, you know, never have depression impact our ability to work, that we would, you know, never be dealing with such extreme anxiety or stress that it would impact our work is, is really, really ridiculous. And I, and I think that that's where a lot of businesses have gone wrong. I know that that was one of the challenges at Girl Scouts where it was like, you know, that the expectation was, I don't care what's happening outside of this office building. I don't care, you know, whether you have a mom who's dying of cancer. I don't care whether, you know, you're late for work because you, you know, have a sick child. I don't care whether you're just having a bad day. That's not my problem. Like when you walk through these doors of this office building, you're supposed to do your work. Um, and I think it's just, it's such a dangerous precedent to set up because it means that we're putting people in a place where they feel like certain emotions and certain feelings and certain states of being are not acceptable in business. And I see that a lot with entrepreneurs 
who suffer from depression and feel like they they can't talk about it that maybe once you're successful once you you know have investment or you've sold your company or you're at a place where you've been kind of vetted enough that you can then be transparent about the fact that you know you're going through this but when you're in an early stage you know your the words out of your mouth all the time are i'm killing it you know everything's going great i'm wonderful uh, because there's still a sense and still a stigma around um, certain human characteristics, human feelings, and and um, and just our our core human functioning. There's still stigma around that in terms of certain things mean you're a weak person, and certain things mean that you're a strong person. I'm not even going to touch it. That was brilliant. Uh, so many, so many brilliant insights. I mean, for those of you guys listening, I would rewind that entire part of the conversation <laughs> and listen to it a few times because I know I'm going to. Um, you know, I want to ask you one more question around Seth, and then we'll talk a little bit about New York Tech Meetup and then close things up. Sure. You know, what, what I think is interesting um, with your experience with Seth is that you kept getting rejected over and over. Yeah. And yet you still persisted. And, and I, you know, there's something in that story to me uh, that tells me about the type of person you are. And I, I, I really, maybe my question here is, is that something that you think people are born with or is it something that can be cultivated? I think it's something that can be cultivated. I mean, I think a lot of the, the lack of persistence sometimes has to do with fear um, and has to do with, in some ways, creating that definition for yourself that we talked about earlier that, you know, if you've been rejected once, it doesn't mean that you're a reject. Like it, you know, if you've had a bad day where you didn't get anything done, it doesn't mean that you're an unproductive person. And I think, you know, even on a daily basis, we will categorize ourselves as um, a failure or a success based on our behavior in one particular day. And I think, you know, with Seth in particular, what was interesting about that situation to me was that I, I understood from him that he wanted me to succeed. So it wasn't a test in which if I couldn't naturally figure it out the first time, he didn't want anything to do with me. It was that he was making me go through that process because he saw some level in, of potential in me. He entertained the idea of me doing the program in the first place and um, had invested time into reviewing what I was doing. And so I think part of it for me was also honoring and respecting that, that he had said, you know, I'm, I'm interested enough in what you have to offer that I'm willing to have you um, present this proposal to me. And, and it was, yeah, it was stressful to, you know, have Seth Godin say, um, uh, you know, call me after I had submitted the proposal and to call him and um, have him just start peppering me with questions about, you know, why are you an expert on this area? Like, I don't think this business plan is going to fly. And then, um, you know, having to go through that process of having these email exchanges where the things that I came up with were, you know, not, not good enough. Um, but I think for me, it was, I, I knew how meaningful that experience was going to be working with him. And so I pushed past any fear that I had. And, um, and I think that that's, you know, that's something that, it may be something that's a bit natural for me, but I, I don't believe that it's something that you, that, that, you know, can't be learned. I think that you can learn to do that. And, um, and I think it's, it's figuring out, you know, when and where to be persistent and how to be persistent. And I think that, um, you know, 
persistence in general is um, a skill that I think is lacking in a lot of people. And it's not because they, they, you know, weren't born with it. It's just because they haven't practiced it. Um, and I think it's one of those things that, you know, you, it, it's not something that you learn once and that you always have, because for me, the persistence has to do with fear and it has to do with social rejection, someone getting mad at you for being persistent, someone rejecting you over and over and over again. And so it's a practice. It's something that you have to cultivate and keep doing and keep doing and keep doing because it's, it's not a skill that you, can, um, that you can learn once and just know forever exactly how to do that. I mean, each time you have to push yourself and get your, and it gets a little bit easier, but it's still, it's a, it's a daily practice for me. I love that. So let's shift gears. Let's uh, let's talk briefly about New York Tech Meetup. I mean, one of the things that intrigued me about the story is Clay said that it is one of the largest meetups in the world. And I guess the real question for me is, is the lessons in building a community that have come from that and how you've you know created such a powerful community? Yeah, I mean, I it is. It's the largest meetup group in the world. Um, I think it's about double the size of the next closest uh, size meetup. We have 41,000 members now. And I certainly can't take the the credit for the initial idea and the initial creation of that community that really came from Scott Heiferman, who founded meetup.com and then founded New York Tech Meetup. And I think, you know, what's fascinating to me about Scott starting meetup.com was just how sort of natural and organic that idea was in terms of, of he he really thought about creating meetup as a reaction to September 11th. And what he witnessed in terms of all of these people kind of living on top of each other in New York City who never interacted with each other that much and didn't have an easy way of finding each other. But after September 11th, they figured out how to connect and they oftentimes were doing it in, you know, really kind of rudimentary basic ways, you know, posting index cards and in apartment lobbies or, um, you know, figuring out who their neighbors were for the first time. And, the meetup.com platform was really around making that more efficient and really helping people find the others in their community who shared similar interests and using the internet as a way to help people quickly connect online so that they could then form deeper connections offline. And I think the fact that that philosophy was infused into New York Tech Meetup from the very beginning was incredibly, incredibly helpful and essential. And we've had people come up to us sort of since we've grown to be so big, asking us how they recreate the event. And I'm like, well, the event is, you know, yes, the sort of outward facing, very public thing that we do every month at this, you know, giant theater, we have 10 companies demo. But the event isn't really the sort of linchpin key factor of what New York Tech Meetup is. The the key factor is that it was a community. And that when Scott started it, it was just a few people gathered around a conference table talking about the technology that they were building, trying to create this network of other entrepreneurs. And it grew really slowly. It grew organically because people were interested in this. They were interested in finding peers in the space. And it, I think, you know, reached that tipping point where um, when I joined in 2011, we had 15,000 members. It was really right when the New York tech community in general was starting to grow. We were getting more VC funding to the community more people were taking it seriously as a tech hub. And 
in some ways, you know, we kind of lucked out that we were the first to the table in terms of the the, the first network of um, people building tech companies in New York. And what I love about that platform and about this idea of building community is that, you know, it's not top down. Um, yes, we're a structured organization now. We have, you know, paid staff but all that we do is really driven by our community and by what they need and how we can support them. You know, I spend my days responding to lots of email and having lots of meetings and connecting lots of dots within the community and helping, you know, this person find that person and this person find the resource that they need. And I think it's been through that process, that process of being helpful, like just in a very simple way, just being helpful to the community and helping to connect all of those dots and giving people a place where they can find each other. Um, that's kind of been the the magic of the meetup. And I think um, there's a really positive sense to the community. You know, I know a lot of people think of New York as being really cutthroat and really competitive and um and and it is competitive but it's it's such a fascinating thing because i think new york is also a place that everyone survives together and so there's this sense of like yes you're trying to make it yourself but everyone in new york is sort of doing the same struggle and there's so much new york pride and so much a sense of um kind of overcoming the hurdles and i think in particular in the tech community in new york because New York was always seen as the underdog, you know, it wasn't Silicon Valley. Um, New Yorkers and New Yorkers who work in tech had like an especially big amount of pride around um, growing the tech community, being a part of the tech community, wanting to raise their hands and say, like, this is me, I'm part of this. Um, and it's to the point now where there are over 1,200 other tech-related meetups in New York City. So if you're in fashion and tech or advertising in tech or you're a Rails developer, there's a meetup for you in the city. And there are, you know, 1,200 other meetups that you can join. And it's it's really amazing for me being at New York Tech Meetup to, to see that, yeah, we can kind of act as the central hub and we're oftentimes the place that people come to first when they're moving into New York and want to get involved in tech or they're transitioning from another industry. And we, we act as that sort of, I think of us as like the information booth in, in Grand Central Station. You know, it's a place where you can come to kind of tap into what's happening in the community and find all of those other people and, you know, find your people um, within the city, which, you know, starts to feel like a small town after a while because, we've been able to cultivate um, this network of people who are all working on all of these things together. Very cool. Um, you know, it, it's interesting as I, I listen to you talk about community, I, I can't help but think, you know, we have our annual event, the instigator experience and you know, the linchpin wasn't the event. Like you said, it's the fact that we've spent five years building a community that leads to the event. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think, you know, the event then becomes a place for, um, the community to gather. And it's sort of like a, a refueling point because, you know, my initial experience with New York Tech Meetup was sitting in the audience and seeing demos and being inspired. I've, you know, brought my parents to the Tech Meetup. They get inspired by it. I feel like everyone who comes, you know, we have more kids coming now. There's this great 11-year-old boy named Peter who comes to the Tech Meetup and asks the best questions of our demoers. And it's, this, you know, sort of amazing, like energy boost where you come back, you get plugged in, you get excited about what you're doing, you get inspired to build something. And it just feeds upon itself. I think that that energy becomes really contagious. Awesome. 
Well, Jessica, uh, I have to say, uh, you know, I'm not surprised that Clay thought you'd be a fabulous interview. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. So I have one final question that I close all my interviews with. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it really is that um, ability to kind of tap into their own potential and really live who they truly are. And I I think that, you know, we all have something really incredibly unique to offer the world. And we get really pulled into um, this idea of comparing ourselves to others and um, often trying to fit in with certain stereotypes. And I think, you know, what makes people really stand out to me and the people that I tend to gravitate towards are those who sort of push that aside and, and really let who they truly are shine through and and tap really deeply into that potential that they have to offer the world. Awesome. Uh, Well, Jessica, like I said, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. And uh, for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard and you want to help us keep producing more amazing interviews with amazing guests, the best way you can support the show is by making a contribution of as little as a dollar at unmistakabledonation.com. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration 
into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.